0: Thank you. the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by a student-staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host Kyra and for this episode I'll be in conversation with Raidat Suleiman, a recent graduate of Sociology at Westminster. In this interview, we delve into Raidat's dissertation on racial stereotypes, critical race theory, and how we might begin to decolonize sociology as a discipline. Hi Raidat, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It is so good to have you here today. Thank you, hi
1: Kara. it's lovely to be here.
0: Um, So I like to start off the podcast with the guests telling us a little bit more about themselves. So where are you from?
1: Um, I'm from London
0: and where like are your parents from like where um, like originally uh, my parents are from
1: Zanzibar so um, Tanzania and East Africa
0: oh nice
1: nice
0: so you actually studied sociology with me so how does it feel to have yeah. like this chapter in your academic career not over I guess like you know once a sociologist always a sociologist but to pass your kind of undergrads with just like flying
1: colors like how do you feel uh, it's been a <laughs> like, highlight, I think it's like one of those things where it's like you actually did it, especially given the last year or so, it's been quite hectic. So having Pike, like you said, passing the flying colours is a real achievement that I'm still like coming to terms with now as well. It's been amazing. I think it's because we've like, specialised in our field, so to speak, and like you said, once a sociologist, always sociologist. We'll always have those sociological skills and imagination there, so I think it's been incredible. And it's weird that it's coming to an end, so to speak, but we can utilise those skills in other films. Like I'll be hopefully studying a master's in September in social work. So I I can use like um, concepts such as intersectionality and anti-racist practice within that field. So it's applicable to anything really. So it's really good.
0: No, absolutely. I totally agree with you. So what would you say has been like the kind of highlight of your university
1: experience just overall? I would say the highlight of all would be my dissertation. It's the independent project, it's the big finale, so to speak. And mm-hmm. especially doing it in these circumstances, it's been a real eye-opener about how like confident we are in terms of our um, knowledge and studies. And not only that, but like, our perseverance during this, like we managed mm-hmm. to do a dissertation, either through interviews or secondary data. And I think that's incredible that we were able to do that. Like I was able to study something and, like interview people that I know about a topic that I'm interested in as well which was really good
0: no absolutely and I'm actually so happy you said that the highlight was your dissertation because I think we're going to revisit sociology in a bit because I wanted to take this opportunity to actually discuss your dissertation and your topic of study so you named your dissertation quote it's a constant fight to prove them wrong quote the narratives of young black women in London dealing with stereotypes. What was the process of you kind of choosing this topic of research?
1: Well, a lot of mind maps last summer was a lot of planning. As soon as I got the emails like plan away, let's go. Because it was really hard at first. There's like there's so many topics we could have dived into, like ageism and so on. But I wanted to stick with stereotypes because it's a common phenomenon that we all deal with, especially as ethnic minorities, as you know. So I had to narrow it down because I was first gonna look at media and stereotypes and then I realized that was too broad and then I had to narrow it down mm. to stereotypes and microaggressions. So it was really nice to sort of study that and understand how stereotypes can play a huge role, not only in mental health and well-being, but like in the daily experience because their stereotypes and microaggressions are both part of the daily experiences of racism that we kind of neglect because we just assume of covert racism, like blatant racism where we deal with like the um, overt and covert. So the covert was what I wanted to look into. And not only that, it's because I realized during Black Lives Matter last year, a lot of my black friends, particularly my female friends felt kind of isolated from this arena, so to speak, because they felt that they weren't being heard, especially by the white peers, because they might not understand what it's really like, because they just assume, oh, racism doesn't exist, or you always talk about the race card, so they felt really invalidated. So as a researcher, and I thought about myself, I really wanted to dive into those topics, and I'm also interested in equality, anti-racist practice, and just decolonizing the curriculum, so to speak, as well, so it was really interesting to kind of study that and interview my friends and family about those issues as well
0: no absolutely and I think it was it's just, just such an interesting topic in general and I think you know you said that you used um, semi-structured interviews for your methodology and I can only imagine how challenging it must have been trying to conduct those during a pandemic yeah it was very stressful <laughs> how did you kind of find managing that like element of your dissertation oh gosh <laughs>
1: good question I think it was just hard because you don't get that connection that you really need on camera than in person, because you weren't able to always pick up on social cues if someone's distressed. So I had to even hire that during the interview recording, making sure everyone was okay, are they able to talk about this, because as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to provide a safe platform to be able to discuss these issues and not for the participants to judge, because it's their experiences, it's their stories I wanted to lay out on the table, so to speak, and I think it was difficult because As I was doing the interviews, I was reflecting at the same time on my own experiences, I was like, wow, okay, I feel really validated by this, because this happens and it's just seen as something minuscule, as I mentioned earlier, microaggressions, they play a huge role, but we just don't know enough about them, because A, it's a recent phenomenon, B, we just think, oh, that's not racism, you know, that, that didn't happen, because you're still processing, was that racism, was that racist, or was it just a minor thing? And they have a huge impact on people over time. And I think the more we speak about these issues, the more we bring awareness to it instead of being silent about it. And especially as you mentioned in terms of microaggressions in the classroom, for example, is a huge thing that I didn't dive into, but it would be interesting if I did like a follow-up study at some point about like microaggressions in the classroom or something like
0: that. Yeah, absolutely. And just coming off what you've said there, obviously being a young black woman from London, like I can imagine you were able to relate with a lot of if not all of your interviewees in some of their experiences which i think is definitely a good thing but obviously there's this kind of risk of You know sharing your own kind of lived and learned experiences with them and then that affecting how they feel or kind of understand a situation which then will go on to affect kind of your data and just your overall kind of study so Mm. my question is do you feel like because of your positionality you had to be extra cautious in the kind of interview stage and when you were writing up your questions so you weren't kind of putting your own emotions and thoughts onto your kind of participants?
1: question yeah I had to be 100% cautious because as you mentioned my positionality could affect the data so I had to like remind myself I'm a researcher at the moment I can't bring my emotions in but I was during these interviews I was nodding my head I was like saying "Mm -hmm. I understand that must have been shocking and I was like wow and these expressions and I was really picking up on the participants emotions given the fact that it was all based um, online as well so I think it's very risky with any research that we do whether it's um, secondary or primary data that our own experiences don't jeopardize the data I think it's quite a muddy area to be in but I did my best in terms of that I was very reflective and reflective throughout the entire process as you asked me mm. so on the flip side
0: of things I guess do you feel like you were able to kind of like identify concepts like right off the bat during the interview process like that perhaps like a white researcher or even like a black male researcher like might have missed
1: yeah, actually, post-reflection on my dissertation overall and during the interview process, a lot of misogyny and other elements of racism that it's not commonly spoken about. Misogyny was a key thing that I noticed in terms of one of my participants saying, "Oh, they um, at her workplace, she was assuming, you know angry black woman status, and that was what was given to her and a sister who worked at the same shop, for example, and." It would just goes to show that it's not just about the nuances of racism, it's such a bigger area to dive into. So I think, yeah, in terms of male, um, particular black male researchers, they may not really understand the message you know, or re- just say, oh, it's just gender, where intersectionality is a huge part of uh, my dissertation and my research, because it wasn't just about race and gender. In terms of something I didn't actually speak about much in my dissertation, but I noticed whilst during reading my transcripts over and over again was there was a section. about um, One of participants who was the evil stepmother in her Cinderella play at primary school and she spoke about intersectionality in terms of her size and being black, that is something that we don't take into account often as well, so it's really nice to see those different perspectives that it's not just about race and gender it can be about race and size it can be race and disability and so on and so forth and that can have a huge role and impact on a person's day-to-day life so I think intersectionality was at the heart of my dissertation as well
0: Mm, absolutely I like that you actually picked up on that because it wasn't even something that I would even consider like to think about kind of like size and kind of like the privilege that maybe like somebody with that are, that is slimmer than another might experience you know? yeah yeah and you know you discuss a bit about kind of quite a bit actually about the angry black women stereotype and before reading your analysis like even I was thinking about like where this like stems from and I feel like it has yeah. to do with race in the sense that because we're black like we immediately are associated with this kind of stereotype of like Black hyper masculinity, therefore making us kind of like predisposed That's to having like this aggressive nature. And then to tie that into being a woman who are stereotypically like these overly emotional beings that, you know, can't think logically. And I just feel like black women, like we really pull like the short end of the stick. But obviously- 100%, <laughs> honestly. And you've obviously looked more deeply into the literature um, surrounding this and its kind of origins so would you like to kind of like mm-hmm. share some
1: light on that? Sure so Jewel 1993 and Collins 2000 have mentioned that a lot of the reason why there's the young black woman stereotype has stemmed from the media so a lot of the literature that I read was American so I had I also mentioned that in the end of my literature review that a lot of the literature out there is American, so we needed more insight into the British experience, which i dived into briefly, as you've seen. I think a lot of it is to do with the media, especially as from the research that I read, because America is a huge part of the race relations discussion because of slavery and so on. So like the mammy, who is typically depicted as like the maid, as we've seen in certain films, like 12 Years a Slave or the Help with Octavia Spence, who is a maid. So the mammy is basically the person who takes care of the white rich family's children, for example. That can put us as a dismissive sort of subcategory. And then there's the Jebazel, um, yeah, the who's like sultry and seductive. So she's like toying men's emotions and she's vindictive. And that also puts us in a negative light, too. And then the black woman is a byproduct of. Um, the Jebezel and other stereotypes, like you said, that were seen as aggressive. And as we've seen with the likes of Naomi Osaka, because recently she um, <clears throat> recently she sort of early retired out of the um, tennis tournaments because of mental health. She was seen as very dismissive, whereas like, her mental health mattered. We've seen with the caricatures of Serena Williams, who is a tennis icon. Mm-hmm. And we see that just play out, even Michelle Obama, she's seen as an angry Black woman, but she's educated and she literally has a degree in sociology, like mm-hmm. we do. So, like you said, even with one of my participants, she mentioned that Black women can't be gentle, soft or kind. And it's like you mentioned earlier, that we're just seen as aggressive. There's nothing more to us than our aggression. She even mentioned that, oh, we can't even be passively aggressive because that's this full-blown aggression. So we can't be anything and we put either pigeonhole or put into boxes that no black women are angry. That's all we do. And for me personally, I'm very quiet and reserved and shy. I'm not loud unless I'm with friends and I'm comfortable with them. So there's that just position where black women can't be anything but aggressive and angry and broody. And I've I've been seen quite often as broody because I'm quite quiet, but I'm like, I'm just minding my own business, I'm keeping to myself. I don't want to bring oh, like attention and awareness to myself because I'm at risk. And I think a lot of the time people don't really understand the risk that black women have with the scene, we have what one of the sociologists um, caused double jeopardy. So you know, we're just we're not only just a woman, but we're black, and that comes with the cost and the emotional cost in terms of emotional labor. So I think these stereotypes such as the angry Black women is so detrimental, because that's. We just even end up internalising that. and just seen as angry. And it really harbours a lot of low self-esteem and negativity about oneself. And it's really hard to overcome that given the world that we live in.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also feel like just thinking in terms of, you know, going off what you've just said, how we can't kind of express our emotions. And, you know, even when we feel like we've been hard done by And like, we're always, I feel anyways, that we're always constantly kind of in competition with like white women. And I think this even kind of relates to, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this concept of like white women tears. And yes, (laughs) I've been reading up on that. (laughs) Yeah. And how like they use like strategic tears to like silence women of color or like brand us as bullies, which literally like reinforces this kind of angry black women stereotype, you know, and it's like, we're put in these positions where it's like, now I definitely can't express how I feel because the white woman next to me is crying. And like, don't get me wrong, Yeah. like I'm not a cold hearted person and I definitely cry <laughs> yeah. just as much as the next person. But for me, it's yeah. like, why are my feelings invalidated because a white person gets to openly and let's be honest, like overly express theirs, you know, like the things weren't needed.
1: <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of a tweet that I saw the other day that black women have to harden themselves or turn themselves into still. And this is exactly what we're talking about now, but we can't be emotional. And I find that ridiculous. And it's also so detrimental because it spikes up anxiety and depression because we just feel so conscious about our emotions that we don't want rock other people's boats, but our boats have been constantly rocked all the time. And we're like, we're still strongly still and we have our arm ready, ready to go. But then when can we let go of that armor where we can just cry? Yeah. peace and I think I've seen tic- the TikTok trend of the whole white women's tears and it was really scary to see that sudden so shift from like crying into this, this still cold hard face and I was thinking and a lot of the um ethnic minority TikTokers were mentioned this is so dangerous to us yeah. because there have been times I think last year the year, last year actually there was a video about this black man who um, it's a white woman threatening him and she saw the whole white woman's tears analogy so to speak and he got in so much trouble but everyone kind of put on that she just did that and put him at a risk of getting arrested and the, the charges were dropped after that yeah because she was oh he attacked me when he was literally just walking by in the park and this was in america and i think people don't understand how detrimental it is because it's not only our safety is at risk our whole dignity and we're just seen as subhuman as you've seen the stereotypes in the media, everywhere, really. Like, it has a huge impact. So I'm glad that I was able to study in depth about stereotypes because they're detrimental. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think
0: every time I think of, like, just this concept of white women's tears, like, I always just think of the story of Emmett Till and just yeah. that whole, like, that just that tragedy. And that is literally what I tie it back to every single time. But I like that mm-hmm. you raised the point of saying how we're made to feel like we need to be just cold all the time because I think obviously yeah that like that is kind of what it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy and then in that same instant, it's like we're seen as like beings that are like unattractive and like unlovable because we're so cold and that we're so like we're incapable of expressing our emotions but it's literally just because we've been made to feel like we can't so 100% yeah but um why do you feel like individuals kind of internalize their stereotypes rather than
1: prove them wrong? That's a great question. It's rather complex, really, because Colin's research concluded that the internalization is inevitable and Chow, 2010, has mentioned in her research that stereotyping is inevitable. There's no escape from it. Because even if you like, even with my title, that was from the participants. Um, experience she said no matter how hard i try it's it's impossible to prove them wrong i'm paraphrasing it that's the thing it's like it's exhaustion from trying to constantly prove others wrong and even my all my interviewees mentioned that, that there's this they try so hard yet they're stuck and they have to be this cold supposedly vindictive person where in reality they're just trying to live their life get their education but it's they've been put on the pedestal where they have to be strong. And that's so draining in terms of strong black woman trope. of my participants said to me, oh, I use this, I use a strong black woman and I am a strong black woman because if I don't, I can't deal with this in terms of racism. So She's carrying the heavy weight of racism on her shoulders constantly, where she has to be strong. It's like you mentioned that we have to be cold in order to survive, where it's like we should just be able to exist. So I think it's difficult because although we try our hardest not to internalise it, but when other people, like you mentioned, invalidation, that was a key aspect of my decision as well. The constant validation will make you just accept it as it is. I am like this when you're not. It's really, I think it's a very complicated thing that has to be like nitpicked and yeah. analysed properly, I think.
0: No, absolutely. And I think even just this kind of concept of, like, colorism and kind of the different experiences yeah. of black women who are of lighter skin like myself like I know that there's I have a privilege just being like lighter and I know that Mm. you know I'm probably allowed to be more expressive and and I definitely kind of understand my privilege in that sense and I think that also needs to be taken into account in like analysis because you know at the end of the day the closer you are to whiteness even though I'm not white the closer I am to whiteness like the more privilege I obviously can obtain and I think that is definitely something to kind of consider.
1: Yeah I agree I think a lot of more research going forward should include colorism. I did briefly touch upon that in my research and I did mention that conclusion that it needs to be spoken up, up about more in research by taking that into account. It was really interesting to see because when I was talking to my supervisor she mentioned I was like yeah I didn't I was sorry, but I didn't know where to put it. But then at the end, it made perfect sense because the darker participants were, the more intense the experiences of racism and stereotypes were. And like you said, you do have that privilege, and I don't blame you for that. Like, it's not on you. It's just the fact that you've been able to acknowledge that I have this in order to do something about Because I think quite often, colorism is disregarded because it's like, oh, it's the race talk again. This is so annoying, right? It's like it affects everyone, whether you like it or not. We can't just be silent about issues like this because it's just perpetuating that racism, that discriminatory behavior that continues to be strong.
0: Well, I think that this kind of ties in to my next topic that I kind of wanted to discuss, and I think given Mm -hmm. everything that is going on at the moment in terms of, you know, the recent government attacks on critical race theory them condemning the England team for taking the knee and like recent reports that have tried to kind of talk on matters of race. I think we are living in such like a crazy time. And I feel like, like we were in this moment where we were literally pulling teeth for the government and these institutions to like acknowledge race and inequality. And now it's kind of like, they're all talking about it but they're trying to kind of almost reframe it and redefine it so it can benefit them. And I just wanted to dedicate some time to talking about this with you. Do you feel like attacks on critical race theory detract the efforts of kind of anti-racist
1: movements? I think so. I think all of it is a smokescreen, to be honest. I think it's just like you mentioned, diverting the the responsibility and encountering the government has. It's a government, we're supposedly democratic, yeah, there is no democratic, as I wrote in my performativity essay about But Lives Matter. Although Boris Johnson said, oh, we support But Lives Matter. He then said this act of thuggery. And a lot of people do think BLM is a political agenda, where originally that wasn't the case. Originally, it was to do race, and it always will be about race. But a lot of people, I think, like I said, in the past couple of months, have just disregarded BLM There's like this polit- politics politics, and that's it, we don't want to talk about it. And I think it ties into Kemi and um speech on CTR, and she said it's a political agenda, and it's aimed to segregate society. But I think I'm going to debunk that, that's not the case, because society has being segregated for so long, even recently with South Africa in the past couple of hours, there's been riots because of President Zuma's arrest. So, I do, although she says African doesn't need decolonizing, I think it does, because as we did in our video about decolonized sociology, decolonizing the curriculum expands to every aspect of education and to debunk that myth of meritocracy, like, like what Bowles and Gintz discussed. And although, like Kenny says, it misguides judgment, I think it's crucial in the sense that we don't, we use it as a tool. We don't obviously indoctrinate, it, but we use it as a tool to understand others' experiences in a proactive way rather than the performative way by its force announcing like, we support Black Lives Matter or we support SACA and Rashford where we've seen in the past, probably 24, 48 hours rioting. And I just saw this morning about how a black person has been thrown into the train tracks today and one person has been thrown into the river tent. So it's really important to understand how race plays out. In all aspects of life, not just in school or at home, but everywhere. And the way she says Black lives matter, Black lives do matter, is very performative. Although she's a Black person, she's still being performative. And that's just undermining the the anti racist effort. And she describes it, as I rewatched her speech, as not wholesome. Racism isn't wholesome, you know, it's brutal and it's cruel. So I feel like. It's not only that, as a Black woman, she's a middle-class Black woman. She sounds very classist as well from that speech. She sounds very like, I have, I have privilege, although I'm a Black woman, I have privilege. I'm literally in Parliament. So it sounds also like she's being out of touch as well, and no wonder a lot of ethnic minorities don't agree with her. She even had that spout with one of the journalists, and that caused a lot of controversy for her, I think. And I do think it's harmful because intersectionality is a crucial part of CTR and it has to be taught in schools and in and in workplaces because it's a daily is a daily experience, so activism is needed, but proactive activism that isn't criminal, but like evidence based pro- proactive. Like, <laughs> evidence based proactivism is key. I think.
0: No, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think just thinking about kind of what this message sends and kind of the implications that it has on just like the education system in general i mean recently like the education committee released a report about kind of the white working class and how they've been kind of let down and they've used this word like forgotten which we can talk about later but they're basically saying and blaming critical race theory um for concepts like white privilege for the underperformance of white working class pupils. And it's saying that the system has been kind of too focused on BAME students and the attainment gap. So now we have this kind of forgotten white underclass. What is kind of your, what is your opinion of that just like off the bat? I think, like I
1: mentioned earlier, I think it's a smokescreen again to do, to divert the situation and blaming BAME students where if education is so equal, it should include everyone, white students, BAME students, disabled students, because education is supposedly, so to speak, for all, but that we know that's not the case. We know the disparities between both white and BAME students, so there's there's also an interesting fact, they don't actually discuss Black working class students at all in this, in their statement, in the report that I read, and apparently discussion of white privilege is a negative term, it's divisive, it marginalizes working class. And I think education needs to be reformed in a way of serving and supporting all students. And it focuses mainly on class and they should look into maternal deprivation, what's causing these disparities and just take it into account as a whole, and not saying forgotten. Because although I do think a lot of, they mentioned how like a lot of white students well, I think it was like 25% or so are on preschool mills, and that's detriment to them. I think it needs to be taken into account of their living, the geographical location, their living conditions, their social capital, and economic capital. Because although we can say the working class have been forgotten about, the they're the key part of the educational strategy, so to speak, because they may not have access to go to museums constantly. And I think it's also because of budget cuts in the last couple of years. We used to have a lot of youth centres, the Sure Start centres, they've all been eradicated. So where is that support needed for those students as well? Mm.
0: No, 100%. And this is even what I mean when I say, like, they're almost changing how race has been kind of defined and understood, like... Just to even try to diminish like the concept of white privilege, like we're not saying that white working class pupils can't be disadvantaged, like I assure you they can, but at the end of the day that disadvantage will never be Mm -hmm. because of their race, like the issue at hand here, like you said, is budgeting, like the system is just underfunded you know and the attainment gap it still exists black afro-caribbean boys are still more likely to be permanently excluded you know since i've started studying sociology at GCSE, like the statistics have stayed the same like we haven't seen any change on our half
1: either so yeah when i studied it at a level like this the statistics like you said have stayed the same and there's no change because the budget cuts the whole narrative of like we're forgetting the working class and I'm like you need to include black working class students to include Asian working class students, Mm -hmm. it's not just about white working class students, if you really want to be inclusive include all working class students and it is about budget cuts and the fact that teachers unconscious biases and racist abuse perhaps because we all have unconscious bias, there needs to be an element of educating others about Other students' experiences. There could be issues at home. You don't know the full picture. And like you said, it seems to be an element of the dilution of the race talk. Mm -hmm. The race talk is so negative. Mm -hmm. And like attacking Black, like Dawn Butler, for example, and other Black MPs, isn't going to solve this issue. It's just going to cause this rift. Although they said, oh, white privilege and other concepts are divisive. By you arguing and not accepting people's opinions about this thing, it just upholds that. The white privilege aspect of things that they have the privilege, they're able to go to museums and be able to have tutors, where white working class students may not be able to have that. They might have to have mass surgery after school mm. and so on. They may have to look after siblings. There's so many factors there that we don't know why there's that disparity in the first place. It's not just about looking into race. I think there needs to be an in-depth analysis of other aspects such as maternal deprivation and so on.
0: Mm, No, absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think just thinking about the kind of on the kind of grand scheme of things, I think that this is definitely a part of like an agenda to almost kind of pit like a race war in like the working class, you know, and this just Mm -hmm. just the word of like, just using this word like forgotten, you know, for the white working class to see themselves as forgotten, it makes it seem as though they are supposed to be in the spotlight above everyone else. You know, for you to be forgotten, you wouldn't you would have had to have been in a position where you were the priority because otherwise you wouldn't know any different. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. for me, it's kind of not only is it this kind of narrative of you've been forgotten, but it's also this narrative of you've been replaced by people of colour, you know, and this is by your government in a white man's country it's almost too easy and so obvious that you'd think like people would be like, do they think like we're stupid? Like, we're just like, we're just going to read into this. But at the end of the day, like, you know, they're telling like this disadvantaged group of people what they want to hear. You know, they're giving them a scapegoat for their problems and they're saying, you know, like working class people of color is the issue. And, you know, why would they question it when it's literally being given to them on a silver platter?
1: yeah
0: 100%. but do you think that concepts like white privilege need to be taught in school and if so kind of like from what age do you feel like is the right time
1: I think it's important that it's taught but probably like secondary school mm. age rather than primary school I think mm. primary schools should definitely in their PSHE lessons talk about race and mm. um, Race, racism and gender and those issues from an earlier stage, because one of the participants that I interviewed mentioned that it's important that young students understand racism from an early age, because they may have come from a home that's racist. So it's important because many I've had many cases of friends being called the N-word at a young age. or like Personally, my sister has been called the N-word mm. at a young age, like in year five. So it was really important to understand that primary socialization takes is detrimental in the sense that if it's negative, if the right education isn't being taught at home, how are they going to be upstanding global citizens, so to speak, if they're going to be racist. Mm. I think that these concepts are important, racism needs to be more focused in all educational stages from key key stage one, probably key stage two onwards, that as I mentioned, PHSC lessons are crucial and should be compulsory, I think. That the children do need to understand the implications of racism because a lot of my participants mentioned awareness is key, either through social media, if for like a teenager, through parents, through reading books about racism and other children's experiences, because we know quite often history is whitewashed. So it's important that there's that diversity from reading books at Young Age, and this applies in primary school. So having not just I think I recall growing up this Hannah's Fruit Basket was a book that we read as kids. So like introducing books like that, books about Egypt and other Mm -hmm. histories is really crucial I think for change as well.
0: So going back to talking about sociology and kind of thinking in terms of decolonization, in what ways do you feel like sociology is still a kind of colonial
1: discipline? I think it is still a colonial discipline because we still hear white, people, white researchers' voices, in particular the Western voice, and it's quite often diluting other races' research and other, like, Eastern voice. As we know about um, orientalism, the history of Asian culture is very orientalist in the sense that it's exotic. The whole topic of exoticism is a key aspect that I think sociology needs to study a bit more into. And as its part, obviously, it stems from, from like imperialism colonialism and the revolutions and so on, it's really important that we eventually end up having a global Economy of knowledge that is diverse, as Bambera mentioned. I think it's important that decolonizing, as we mentioned, isn't just about diversifying the curriculum by adding books in, but really taking into account of other people's research. And it isn't about forgetting the founding fathers. Their research is crucial for sociology, but also being critical about, about their voices and their history. As we know, with Durkheim, he studied tribes and the way he studied it was very, would be very controversial today. So it's important that we understand the founding father's history in order to project sociology as a critical, a continuous critical subject that continues to challenge these concepts to build a better society, I think, as well.
0: Absolutely. And I think coming off that, like it's about definitely like decolonizing kind of the curriculum and decolonizing kind of the uh, reading list that we come to kind of study and then incorporating different yeah. voices and different research and I think it's even about decolonizing like the spaces that we create in sociology you know obviously we've had yeah. from the shift to online learning like things have changed a lot but I think in terms of like creating like a decolonial space like microaggressions take place online offline you know like it's not they still exist mm-hmm. How do you feel yeah. that we can kind of dismantle the microaggressions that still occur in classrooms, especially considering like your dissertation topic as well?
1: I think it's just the acknowledgement of what microaggressions are bringing awareness to what they are. As I mentioned, it's kind of a recent phenomenon, so not many people understand what it is. Uh, microaggressions are also subcategorized as micro-insults and micro-invalidation, so micro says, oh wow, you're really good at maths, or mm. like, "Oh, you're really, I'm surprised you're not good at maths because you're Asian, for example, and those have a really knock-on effect on the individual themselves, because microaggressions, as I found out in my dissertation, they're not always intentional. So an example yeah. is that one participant's accent was seen as exotic, so her uni friend said, Oh, I don't like British accents, but I like your accent because it's exotic and fun. So it doesn't mean that the impact isn't detrimental, or that blow to the system isn't hard, it is, but it's quite difficult to process because my microgressions can be seen as a compliment, where in fact, then they're They're very insulting, they're very degrading, whereas stereotypes, which I found, as I studied the relationship between the two, stereotypes are typically deliberate and intentional, but doesn't mean the severity of the stereotypes and microaggressions should be understated. So in terms of, coming back to microaggressions, as I mentioned earlier, it's linked to everyday racism, it is, it's not a singular occurrence, so there has to be healthy discussion about it, so common microaggressions in the classrooms can be mispronunciational names, personally, range from many microaggressions in the classroom, and a lot of my friends have even told teachers you're saying her name wrong it gets really tiring having to say my name over and over again it's like my mm. well name oh my it. gosh I can so relate <laughs> to it's this it's like <laughs> it's just like it is so frustrating because I know they mean well but it's at the same time also invalidating me and I feel uncomfortable and it's like my name's like five to six lessons long I don't want to shorten it to right because mm. it's like that constant because I've even seen in America that people had to Inv- Evangelicalize their names for Asian names have been evangelicized to like Victoria and other names because teachers can pronounce it properly you or know, people laughing about it. What makes it worse, I think, when people laugh about yeah, 100 F- percent ethnic minorities' names being mispronounced, that's also a microaggression. I think it's very insulting because wouldn't I try my best to pronounce people's names and if I get it wrong, I say I'm sorry and I try again, but then if it's that constant, I have to say it to someone. Constantly. It's like, what's the point? You might as well just call me by the wrong name as well. So it's important that I think everywhere, not just in the class in the workplace, that microaggressions need to be seen. They're not jokes, they're real things. But quite often I do think people just don't understand it. And I think other microaggressions, like I mentioned, is ability. Oh, girls are good at maths. I'm shocked. How can you be good at maths? Or how oh, I'm surprised you want to study this subject. Or Mm -hmm. You're so articulate, which is one that I quite often get. It's like, you don't know my story or how I, what I've overcome to get here. You can't really say stuff like that because quite often I get people telling me I sound posh. Yes, I was born raised in London, but I spoke late. So my accent could be a number of different things. I also had speech and language therapy until year seven, year eight. Mm. So of course I've been taught how to enunciate better and pronounce different words. So my accent, you know, it's different, so to speak. And it's that weird sort of where do I fit in? It's this weird, like you just stick out as a sore thumb and you're just trying to just learn. And I think invalidation, micro invalidation is a problem the worst because it's like invalidating someone's experience, and ability, and so on. And it's important that we understand it and like have healthy discussions about it in the classroom. Like, and also lecturers and teachers understand okay, maybe I've just performed the microaggression how does that student feel or if someone in the classroom has said it, it would be nice if once teachers and let just have an awareness to not necessarily call out that student, just to tell them what you said was a microaggression, that wasn't nice and I can talk about it I think we need that healthy discussion in classrooms in order to really understand and dismantle microaggressions as well
0: yeah no I absolutely agree with you you've touched on so many things and I'm just like that have resonated with me but 100% like I feel like healthy discussion needs to be had and I feel like as soon as people stop looking at having conversations as race as being like uncomfortable like do we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable at the end of the day otherwise we're never gonna be able to kind of like make change and at the end of the day like if race is going to be a co- uncomfortable discussion to have like usually it's probably on our part like I feel like me having conversations with white people about race like I always feel like just very like antsy and I feel like I get what you mean you know and I think yeah you're at risk
1: of being like verbally abused so 100%. it's always a risk talking about it 100% I think it's just like I mentioned earlier we we end up not rocking other people's boats, but they rock our boats, Mm -hmm. and i find it ironic that you said it makes them uncomfortable but imagine how heavy and uncomfortable this is for us all the time and for example that being denied to us oh that didn't happen it makes us feel 10 times worse because it's like we want to have healthy discussions i'm always up for that healthy discussion like i'm up for it and if you need to learn just ask me Mm -hmm. if you can't pronounce my name just ask me kindly and stuff like that like in terms in terms of your own experiences, like what sort of microaggressions that have you like witnessed or ever experienced in terms of the class? Because you mentioned that how you know you resonated with what I was saying.
0: Well, for me, like one that I experience is probably like the name thing. Like I'm always being called like Kira. And it's just mm-hmm. like it's honestly happened for like years. So it's just kind of like even yeah. now, like I just literally respond to. That name, and it's just like I'm so tired of saying, you know, like that's not my name, and I also just feel uncomfortable as well because it's usually met with like a, oh no, sorry about that, like you know, and it's just like you know, it's totally fine, and then they go back to yeah. saying it, and it's just like, oh, okay, like I'm just just not gonna, I'm just not gonna put myself on the kind of like line anymore because I think that's what it is, literally, yeah. like having conversations about race for people of color it's always on our part where we need to be, like, vulnerable, like, we're the ones that have to be vulnerable, we're the ones that have to put ourselves on the line, we're the ones that are literally kind of bringing our own, like, kind of trauma to the table, you know, and it's like, it's not, it's not uncomfortable for a white person, you know, you just literally have to sit there and listen, but it's me that's the person that's, like, you know, giving my all to you, Mm -hmm. and I feel like that is another thing where, you know, we don't always necessarily like to talk about microaggressions and kind of what we experience because it's just tiring. And it really is exhausting. Yeah, yeah you know. honestly. But I do feel like as much as it is tiring, like the conversations, they do need to be had. And I think I am trying to be mm-hmm. better at kind of just saying, you know what, that is not my name. This is how you pronounce it. And I've even started like on like my social media, I've started putting like the breakdown of how to pronounce my name
1: oh <laughs> like, no. my yeah. bio
0: so I'm just like so now like if you don't pronounce it right it's definitely a you problem
1: yeah going off what you said like I've just remembered now but the and um, the sapphire she's seen as sapphire stereotype she's seen which is why the angry woman stereotype has emerged in the first place she's seen as sassy and mm. aggressive so it's so, in terms of tying that up, as we mentioned earlier, but women are not allowed to be soft or any other emotion than angry. So when we do get angry about our names, we mispronounce, it's just like, oh, she's angry about women. It's like, no, like my name has a lot of meaning behind it. Like my dad chose my name. Exactly. Like it's like my dad chose my name. It's part of my heritage. Like it's an Arabic name. So it's like, like, I feel like when like ethnic names have been called out. It's like this sense of dread in the classroom. You can feel this atmospheric kind of like impending doom. Either like I've seen people's names being skipped, because like teachers literally hold their breath and like they're like, oh God, how do I pronounce this? Like the last time I think I was in English. Yeah, it was English Easy And that was my beginning year 10, 11. So my teacher didn't know how to pronounce her name. And I ended up saying, it's Ryder, really lovely. And I was so shocked. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, because she said my name wrong so many times, but it wasn't my fault. And I didn't mean to yell at her. Like I'm a very kind of calm person. It's because everyone else was like, you're saying her name wrong. But like you mentioned earlier, it's like uncomfortability. It's like, I feel comfortable. Like I don't want to do this. I might just be cool. How other people pronounce my name, because it's still being pronounced wrong, even by ethnic minorities themselves. And it's just like, like do I show my name do yeah. I just accept it like you said people call you Kira instead of Kyra and it's like over time it's like this is just normal for me where mm-hmm. it shouldn't have been the case because I feel like there's so many different wonderful people with such unique names and such beautiful meanings behind them and symbolism yeah the names get butchered then they feel like I don't deserve this name yeah so absolutely I agree with you in terms of like being validation and how
0: Detrimental that can be to one's self-esteem and mental health yeah 100% and even just thinking about what you said like your dad chose your name there's so much history behind it like just thinking about it like that like for you to not pronounce my name right you're not only like denying me kind of my ability to kind of exist but you're just like denying me of like the history of like my heritage and everything that goes behind my name and like of who I am yeah and I feel like it's just so important and yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely making more kind of effort to be like, I'm drawing the line here, and you know. Mm-hmm. But tying back into um, decolonizing sociology, how do you feel like lecturers can begin to kind of actively decolonize their pedagogy or teach kind of like decolonial content?
1: I think it's about awareness of like the unconscious biases in terms of teaching mm-hmm. because. As we know teaching is a crucial part of education and learning and uh, being aware of like I am a lecturer I have my own own bias and views and making sure that doesn't paint a negative picture of the experiences and like I, as we mentioned and we will emphasize it, it's not just about the diversification of sociology it's about I think lecturers really taking into account others um, stories as the fantastic work with yourself and other students with our update reading list and reading this about decolonized sociology, about race, anti-racist practice and racism. I think that was a fantastic thing our university did, and I don't I haven't really heard much or seen much from other universities doing, so I know LSE is doing some stuff about racism and decolonizing, but it needs to be a widespread thing where it's like open, healthy discussions, as we mentioned as well.
0: Unfortunately we are coming to the end of this episode but as a question I'd like to end on what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years?
1: I think it just stems from what you just said Um, in terms of like I'd like to see higher education to be more involved and have a genuine honest and proactive way of, of providing inclusion and equality in the education system in particular higher education because one of my, well, two of my participants mentioned that they experienced racism at university. So one of the participants says she was followed around on her way to campus by a police officer, and she just said that was small. And that really was disheartening and heartbreaking to hear because it shouldn't have been, just because that day she decided to wear a hoodie, she was basically stereotyped and categorized as criminal, which was just, it was this really kind of chilly morning, as you know, in England we quite often have to change our clothes to fit the weather. So I do think that in terms of the, I would love to see decolonization, like you mentioned, being a network, like a solid network, that it's proactive, that it's honest, that we have like these healthy discussions that we are having today, that it shouldn't be performative. Because I feel quite often in the past year or so I've seen a lot of performativity and it's just counterproductive mm-hmm. and it just doesn't help the cause at all. It's just like, oh, there's no evidence-based proactivity, there's no evidence-based action. There's no action, it's just speaking. So thinking back to Black Lives Matter, for example, like a lot of universities had these statements that we are allies, but where is the action? What have you done in the past year? It can't just be about writing this really beautiful elaborate statement where there's nothing that's been done. Like we've seen over the attainment gap, like I mentioned, it's not going away. Although our university said that they've been working to bridge it more work needs to be done across higher education institutions
0: thank you so much Radat, for joining me on this episode of the podcast honestly it's been so nice to have this conversation with you thank you I'm just like getting to know you a bit more and obviously talk about your dissertation which was amazing and thank you for trusting me to read it No worries. but yeah I hope that we can have more conversations like this I think yeah be great thank you so much no worries to find out more information access our tools or get in touch visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk/psj